from the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Hey folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Superpower School podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Dander, and today I have an awesome guest, someone who is very passionate about entrepreneurship. He has been coaching high growth entrepreneur companies, and he's a fourth generation entrepreneur himself. He's the author of an amazing book called The Art of Managing People, Time and Money. And without further ado, I'd love to welcome Rich Russikoff to the show. Hey, Rich, how you doing? I'm doing great, Patty. It's great seeing you and it's an honor to be your guest. Oh, no, the honor's all mine, Rich. Uh, just talking to you a little bit before we kicked off. Yeah. I, I'm so excited for this conversation because a lot of people talk about entrepreneurship. A lot of young folks talk about how they want to be entrepreneurs, but you sound like the type of guy who's been there, done that. You've got the t-shirt. So I'm Really looking forward to tapping into your many years of experience in this area. I was very fortunate when I started coaching to have a relationship with Inc. Magazine. And I was in their coaching division back in the days when they had it. And we studied in 1987, the class of 85, which in those days was the Inc. 500 not the Inc. 5000 that it is today. And we wanted to find out what was the secret sauce? What made them stand out? And much to our surprise, 18 to 20% of the people that made the list were out of business two years later. So we tried to figure out why, what happened. And the first thing we looked at was, was it the economy? And the answer was no. Was it the industry? And the answer was no. Was it the ability to raise capital? And the answer was no. So we thought the answer was the critical decisions that entrepreneurs make at each stage of growth. And high growth is high risk. And you have to know how to manage it. So my wife and I are coaches of Big Leap Coaches and Conscious Living and Conscious Loving, and we studied with Kay and Catherine Hendricks. And when I read Kay's book, The Big Leap, I realized we had missed something very much. And the key thing is to understand what you do that's in your zone of genius. And those are things that you love to do, that you would do with or without pay, and while you're doing it, Time stands still. So you're exhilarated when all of us, when we're doing things in our zone of genius. And it doesn't have to be just business. For example, I just fried some onions for lunch I'm going to serve, and they'll be ready, and cooking is in my zone of genius. But if you break the zones down, what are you doing that's in your zone of incompetence? For me, technical stuff is in my zone of incompetence. So I need someone else to do that. The next stage is you're competent at it. 
but others can do it better and it doesn't light your fire. The third stage is the trap. It's your zone of excellence and you're really good at it. However, it's not your passion and you might want to hire someone else for that position. Generally, for example, entrepreneurs hire COOs to work in the business while they work on the business. What you do in your zone of genius is what you really love, is what turns you on, is what drives your passion. And if you're in your zone of genius, you're not in drama, you're having fun, and you're creative. What happens is if you're stuck in your zone of excellence and can't move on to that zone of genius, it will impact your business and more importantly, your life, because your life is all about what joy can you bring to it? What are you doing that's meaningful that you love doing? So that's a key thing. The other area that was in the book was identifying upper limits barriers. And these are barriers that started out when you were a kid. And it may be, I'm not good enough. I don't deserve this. Or I don't want to leave others behind. Or that you're not doing your best or enjoying it because it'll make other people feel bad. For example, a client I coach is an extraordinary entrepreneur and her husband struggles. So she's holding back that joy because she doesn't want to hurt him. So understanding those upper limits barriers and how they impact on your decisions is critical because otherwise you're likely to burn out or worse, sabotage your success. Why am I successful? I don't deserve this. So you do things, it could be drugs, it could be an affair, it could be eating, it could be a whole host of things that are self-destructive. Oh, I love that. Zone of genius. I'm sort of thinking already, like, what would be my zone of genius? If I wanted to plot out my skills within that whole framework, how would I start? Is there a template I would use? Or what are some of the ways that people would fill this out for themselves? When I do seminars and when I coach clients, I start off by sharing what I did. For me, as I said, inconfidence is anything technical. You don't want me doing it. I shouldn't be doing it. Confidence, you're okay but other people can do it better. I'm a competent driver, but I'm not an excellent driver. And then that zone of excellence, there's a myriad of things that you do well, but it doesn't turn you on. So the first thing I would look at, Patty, is what is it you do that when you're doing it, you're in your zone of genius, which means you're at your best and you love doing it, and time stands still. For me, for example, being interviewed by you this morning and meeting you and sharing with your audience, I'm in my zone of genius. So what I've done is 
I've eliminated about 90% of the things that I used to do and focus on what I love. I have to say, podcasting has become my zone of genius over the last few months because I've discovered it and taken it a lot more seriously than I had ever done. I get so much joy out of it. And it's amazing that it's not just even the talking and the conversation. It's the whole end-to-end workflow, which is taking that episode and then editing it, putting some of my own creativity into that and going as far as even doing the thumbnails. Like the whole creative process for me is what I absolutely love. So I have been thinking a little bit about that as you were talking it through as to what could be my possible zone of genius. So Patty, what I hear from you is you love building relationships. You see this podcast as an opportunity for creativity, from finding the guests, preparing yourself for the interview, doing the interview, and then going into the edit process, all of that is where you light up. So the more time you can spend there, the better. Yeah. Oh, spot on. You summarize that perfectly, Rich. Thank you. (laughs) What do we call this as a framework? Does it have a name? Yeah, it's doing what you love. Right. And what you're really good at. Got it. Got it. Many years ago, Michael Jordan was... In his son of genius playing basketball, mm-hmm. he decided to try baseball. He was good to excellent at it, but it wasn't his zone of genius. So the two things of zone and genius is you have to love it and you excel at it. I was going to say, I think I'm good at vacuuming, but it's definitely not my zone of genius because <laughs> I don't love it. <laughs> well, there are things that have to be done. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. What are some of the people you've helped and what kind of results have they achieved from following some of your tips? Well, basically, I work with high-growth entrepreneurs. It doesn't matter the industry. And generally, we start relationships when their company has grown to about 25 people because that becomes the transformational stage from being the CEO, to having a company that is a professional company that can run while you're not there. And each stage has its challenges. So I come in in stage three, and sometimes I stay with clients for as many as 10 or 20 years. And I like to consider myself the CEO's CEO or Chief Encouragement Officer. So, for example, if I was coaching you today and you told me you love podcasting, I would say, where do you want to take it? How much time in your day are you putting into it? And what do you want to accomplish from it? And what do you have to give up to put more focus here? And I'm sure we talked I'd learn more about the things you'd love. And that's where we should be putting our time. Yeah, got it. And I I would love a separate session on that with you. (laughs) Happy to have it. Oh, so the other thing, so the the people that I coach, and I'm at the point in my career, I can be very selective. They have to be lifetime learners. They have to be relationship builders. 
And what I find by the time a CEO gets to phase three, they have humility and they have on the other side of that seesaw is an overwhelming desire to exceed. And the reason humility is important is because it prevents you from being cocky. It enables you to say, perhaps I need some help in doing this and help me make the best decisions, be a sounding board. So people that are active and growing, that are good relationship builders, that walk their talk in terms of their values. Walt Disney's brother has a wonderful quote, which is that when your values are clear, your decisions are easy because you work within those values in helping you make decisions. We were talking just before we kicked off, Rich, around the book, like what were some of the reasons why you wrote the book and went down this path? Well, I like to say the book was 50 years in the making hmm. in my career as an entrepreneur and business coach, three years in the writing and one day at a time. What I do, Patty, which used to be my zone of excellence, now is my zone of genius, I wrote a post every day. It's approximately 500 words. And when I decided to do that, I decided that I was going to do these posts on a daily basis, and i become a really good writer in a 500-word post. I'm not sure if you asked me to write a 10,000-word essay, whether I be able to do that. I'm in awe of those people. So I do this post every day, and then we go through them. And that led to the first book, People, Time, and Money, because those are key areas of what's in the book. And they're small chapters. There are 500 pages with a message that is backed up by stories or by facts or by what I learned from a client on any given day. So we put together the first book, People, Time, and Money, and then we put together the second, which is volume two. Now, if you're writing 500-word posts and you're writing three new posts a week, over time that really adds up. And all sorts of messages come out. And some of it is about my stories. It's about my clients. It's real time. So the reason we call it people, time, and money is because I was working with a client and he started a business and he got bored with it. So he started another business. And then he started a third business. The problem was the people he had running these businesses were not entrepreneurial and he didn't have the right people in the right place. So then we get to time because he had three businesses. Think of a mama bird feeding little birds. So whenever he was in one place, he wasn't at another and he couldn't manage his time effectively. 
And from a financial standpoint, he didn't have real financial information to make the best decisions. For example, finding a business that's a cash cow and another business that's a sick puppy. And you can either change that sick puppy or you get out of that business and focus on a business you do best. So a client, this client called me that went through that issue and we identified what it was. And that was the origin of people, time and money. In terms of those stories, because I love stories, Rich. So you mentioned you've got some interesting stories in the book. Are there any that really stand out for you that you'd like to share? Well, for example, during 9-11, I was in New York working with a customer called Maxson's Restoration. And I was supposed to do a leadership training. And then the first tower went down. And the leadership team all gathered, except for the CEO who lived in Long Island and couldn't get across. They didn't let him into the city. They weren't letting anyone in the city. So it's a story about Maxon's restoration being down in ground zero for six months. And what we knew we had to do to make a difference. And the CEO, Damon Gersh, won the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award for what they accomplished at that time. Another story is a client that their CFO was in India, where they do a lot of imports, and was their major place where their factories were in a town called Jodhpur in Rajasthan. And there was a lot of saber rattling between Pakistan and India. And India wanted to send a message to Pakistan. So they did a, an atomic explosion. And the CFO said the ground shook for well over 100 miles. And when he came back, they looked at the brutal facts of their business. One, they had all their furniture made in one country. India. And two, they had two major clients that were representing 80% of their business. And three, they didn't have the capital for growth to the next level. So the CEO decided we have to expand. And they went to, they went to Europe and found fantastic leather chairs. They went to Vietnam. They went to China. And they completely opened up their line of what they were carrying. And we decided that Crate and Barrel, who was our best client, we wanted to do at least as much business with others as we do with Crate. So we decided that number three in the Brutal Facts to look at the top 100 furniture retailers in the U.S. and identify which ones we should go after and target. And then we started a campaign to attract them and to come to our showroom when in High Point, North Carolina, and we were very successful with it. So that's an example of another story. So every day, 
something happens with a client. For example, I have a client that just sold his business and three or four people left the company immediately. What happened? Why? If you're doing a merger and acquisition, what should you assume in terms of the people you'll keep and what do you have to do to make that happen? So I'm always looking for stories to share and events and things that I see and that I read to put together a post. And I generally try to tell a story with a message and a to-do to take you to the next level. What a great habit to be able to write 500 words a day. I wish I could do that. I'm absolutely terrible at writing. Well, I'll bet you could. <laughs> I'll bet you could. And you see, it's all about choices. Three years ago when I started, by the way, I'm a terrible speller. And my grammar is in my zone of incompetence. However, I kept writing. And now we have an editor who lives in Ireland, and I'll write a post that I'll finish before nine o'clock at night. And I'll send it to her. She'll edit it. And then we launch it at 6 a.m. in the morning. Wow. So I know on Thursday, I'm going to write a post called Put Your Mask On First. That goes back to the idea of creating the right culture. So if you look at your stakeholders, particularly in the corporate world, your shareholders are number one. And your customers are number two. And the people that work for you are number three. So what I'm going to talk about in this post is serve your people first, which is the equivalent of putting on your mask and then serve your clients. And if you do those two things right, you'll be profitable and you'll serve your equity providers. You've obviously had many years in the industry. You've been working with lots of entrepreneurs. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in terms of being an entrepreneur from, say, 20 years ago or even beyond to today's world? Like, what are the big things that have changed for entrepreneurs? One of them is technology. Mm -hmm. And technology can either be a positive resource or a nightmare. If you don't have the right technology and your people can't embrace it and don't use it, then it's a waste of time and a waste of energy and certainly a waste of money. Another thing is, and this is a post I wrote, the old paradigm was the Peter principle, that people rose in companies until they reached their zone of incompetence or where they weren't good. And as a result, your top-line people were not the best. The new paradigm is give your people a test like the cultural index or predictive index and see what they do best and put them in the right seat. And if you do that and you give them training, you have the opportunity to keep people indefinitely. 
Also, you need to look today at bandwidth. I'm a believer that most entrepreneurs and their leadership teams are very good at time management. What they're not good at is energy management. And energy management is keeping yourself in high, in a high form where you're positive with your energy or low positive energy is if with your mellow, but if you're angry or if you feel frustrated and you're not loving what you're doing, everybody loses. So that paradigm shift is essential for companies to succeed. Clearly today, more people are demanding that they can work virtually. Mm -hmm. So there are challenges there because there are times you need people to be together. But when we take on a new client, Patty, the first thing we do is interview at least 10 people in the company. And we ask them the same questions. And for a very brief period of time, we know more about what's happening in that company today than anybody else because the employees shared that with us. So as a result of knowing that, we know if we have the right people in the right seat, if the CEO is leading properly, if they're inspiring people, and where there may be problems that need to be looked at. So I'd say to any CEO, to use Tom Peters' idea from In Search of Excellence, talk to your people and listen, listen. Let them give you feedback. Let them tell you what's going on. Understand what's happening within your company and how you can improve it. I wish more leaders would do that rather than coming in and feeling that it's a sign of weakness when they're reaching out to their own people for answers. I think that's for me in my short career, compared to yourself, I'm sure I found that was the way I was brought up in terms of the leadership I was around in those first 10, 15 years of my career. And now people are starting to shift and I'm seeing more and more leaders being a little bit more vulnerable. They're happy to admit they don't have the answers and they lean on the people around them. If you're looking at a journey of a high growth company in particular, imagine you're in your Ferrari and you're going from England where you are to France. You're going to take a lot of roads and you don't know what's around the corner and you have to be able to be proactive and that's the key to success. And you don't know if you don't ask for your clients, if you don't ask your people, and you don't listen. So great CEOs are proactive in their listening, and they learn, and they look for opportunities to grow. And how can CEOs grow? As in, how can they learn? If there's a budding CEO out there who's thinking, hey, I just don't have time in the day to focus and learn because they're always on the go, always busy, busy, busy doing things. So that's the first mistake. If you don't have time 
you have to ask yourself why. And you have to ask yourself, where is my time going? And I believe in terms of time management, being a blockhead. So you block out the time for something to listen to a podcast, to listen to a TEDx talk, to read a book. We all learn differently. Some of us learn through audio, but we also learn by experience. And I love what Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, says his job is, my job is not to solve problems. My job is to create the future. So it's a mindset that you need to have. And if you don't have time for something, you have to ask yourself why. What are you doing with that time? And is it as important as what you could be doing with that time if you were focused in the right place? There's been times when I've been in this mode of do, 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 and actually... I think we all need some thinking time, that pause button just to stop and recharge the batteries, energize ourselves in some way or other. If you talk to any good trainer or coach or athlete, they will tell you that the downtime is equally or more important than the time you're clicking off to-dos. Hmm. Because that's where the creativity comes. And another thing I would like to say about writing 500 words a day, I think discipline is overrated and commitment is underrated. I'm committed to write three new posts a week, to do a post I did in the past, which I call Friday's Best of Food for Thought, and to bring in one guest one day a week. Why does it happen? Because of commitment. So it's what are you committing to? What's most important to you? What moves the needle? Where are you doing the best for your company? For example, I would say to almost any entrepreneur, make time to get in front of your clients. If you're in retail, talk to people that come in the door. If you're selling services, visit them. Find out what their goals are. How can you align with those goals? And that's a key role of the CEO. So be a blockhead, Patty. Yeah. Block out the time. For example, I go swimming three times a week. It's one hour. It's blocked off Tuesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon, Saturday at two. It's a commitment. And I did it because I was losing muscle tone. And at my age, that will lead you to not being the person you want to be in your latter years. So where did that time suddenly come from for me to be in a pool three hours a week? I put it on the calendar. I blocked out that time, and I'll be in the pool tomorrow. I'll be in the pool Thursday. I'll be in the pool Saturday. Are entrepreneurs born to be entrepreneurs, or is that something that can be learned? Well, first of all, 
you know you're a leader, if you're a leader, through when you play sports, things you do as you grow up. And I was just addressing this the other day as I was looking at a post a marvelous CEO by the name of Damon Gersh put together. And he says it's a combination of being born with leadership and then learning how to grow and to be a better leader. For example, this guy that's coming to visit us, Brett Hatton, I taught him how to listen. And what he said was, when he shut up and listened, he learned so much more. And his team wasn't frightened of him coming to criticize. They were thrilled that he gave them the opportunity to see what they see and help him make the best possible decision. So it's not an either or. You can grow as an entrepreneur, first of all, identifying your strengths and identifying what you need in order to continue that growth. So I would say great CEOs are lifetime learners. They're always learning. They're always growing. And they're always looking to better themselves and their team. So my final question, if you could give your younger self some advice, Rich, what would be one or two big learnings that you've had? First of all, I think it's critically important that you learn how to manage money. I was on a call with a client last week, and it's the first time he ever looked at his balance sheet. And the balance sheet really is how you keep score. Because the balance sheet shows, are your assets growing or are your liabilities growing? And as we looked at it, we saw, for example, they had $300,000 worth of inventory on the balance sheet. He said, I don't think that's right. I think we have about five or six uh, hundred thousand on our balance sheet. So now we begin to look at the inventory. And we begin to look at what inventory is dead inventory and how do we move it so our money isn't sitting there. So learning how to manage people, how to hire, I believe it's the key to success is hiring, requiring, inspiring, firing, communication, and training to help your people grow. Got it. Oh, some great advice there. Thank you so much, Rich. And unfortunately, we are out of time, but I'm going to give the last word to you, Rich. Is there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yes, I would. If you don't love what you're doing, you may be in the wrong place. Maybe it's time to sell that business. Maybe it's time to move on or find that segment that you love to do and let other people run the day-to-day so that you're working on the business, not in the business. Got it. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rich. It's been a pleasure getting to know you over these last 30 to 40 minutes. I do wish we stay in touch because I'm really keen to know more. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Patty.